There we are. Good morning, everybody. Why don't you go ahead and grab your seats. If you're here for the first time, thanks for being with us today. We've got a, a gift for you. It's a book called How Good is Good Enough. If you haven't grabbed that yet, if you've been visiting with us, um, you haven't grabbed one, they're out in the foyer. So if you would, grab one. That's, that's for you. A simple book about the gospel of grace. Um, very important, something we believe in strongly, obviously, around here. And then also we have a card we'd love for you to fill out, a, just a connection card. Just lets us know that you were here, gives us some information about you, um, and that just allows us to send you information about DCF. We always tell you this, there's an unsubscribe button, so if we're driving you crazy, you can just push that button, and uh, we won't bother you anymore. So we try to, uh, because of that, we try to keep it, keep it down to just what we send out as necessary and no more. Um, I want to start a series this morning. It's something I've been uh, praying into for about 10 years now. So um, it's a pretty big deal. So I'm going to tell you, I'm going to spend a little bit of time on, on the kind of the setup, if you will, the introduction. Um, when we first came here, this has been a little over 10 years. We came in January of 2010. And when we came, we came to a church. Uh, how many of you guys were here when Karen and I came first time? Raise your hand if you were. Alan, Loretta, anybody else? Michael? Cool. Uh, the Palmers were here, uh, who else? A bunch of you guys were here already, so, or some of you came right after that. So we've been here for 10 years, but when we came, the church hadn't had a, had a leader. It had an eldership team, but it hadn't had a senior pastor or a lead pastor for a while. And so we came and we just said, hey, God's connecting us. And we, we talked about how uh, DCF had a track, if you will. And, you know, they've been, they've been around for a long, long time before Karen and I ever got here as, as uh, uh, pastors. Um, and then Karen and I had a track. Sometimes you guys forget that Karen and I existed before we came here. We actually did. <laughs> we actually had planted uh, several churches. We were involved in a lot of ministry. I'd done ministry and um, uh, mission work down in Central America. Um, so I'd done a, lots of different kind of stuff, traveled all over the world. Um, we had had an interesting journey. And when we got here, part of what we prayed for was we said, Lord, what from the old, um, from the path that DCF has been on for the last 20-something years do you want to keep, and what do you want to let go of? So there, you know, like any organization or like any people or any group or family, um, so you have some good stuff that happened, and you have some challenging stuff that happened. Same with Karen and I. And so we said, what from that do you want to keep, and what do you want to let go of? And then what from Karen and I, you know, do you want to keep, and what do you want to let go of? And, it, and then what are you doing in us together? What is it that that looks like? And so we talk a little bit about the, you know, the vision that DCF has. Um, we're, what, what we do is we transform lives. This is what we do here at DCF. We spent five years working that out. We didn't change much. We changed a few, you know, um, a few kind of uh, cosmetic things around here and you know, a couple things that we did to just kind of update things and begin to move forward. When you have someone who's committed to that who can do it, it's pretty easy to do because they have, obviously have time during the week to work on things and to move things downfield. So it wasn't because we didn't want to do that before. It's just that, you know, with a leader now, you have someone who can actually give it attention and focus. Um, but the same thing happened with Karen and I. What came from our past that we wanted to let go of? It was like, okay, some of those things were helpful. Some of them weren't. 
um, one of the things that, that just wasn't helpful at all was kind of our religious um, upbringing. Now, the, we didn't, I didn't get saved until I was in my 20s, got called in the ministry right after that. Um, we started Bible college pretty quick. We ended up doing some Bible college overseas, and then we ended up in California um, for the Bible college out there. And so in the process, we learned a lot of things that were wholly unhelpful. <laughs> and there's no other way to put that. I mean, it's just, I mean, there's other ways to put that that are worse, but I'm just trying to be kind. It was just some of it stuff was not, it, it was not just unhelpful, it was downright destructive to our life and to the people that we led, but we didn't know it. What we did is like most people, and probably you have if you grew up in church or around, you know, this southern culture, most of us have, have been in church to some degree. You come in and you just, you get something from the culture. You know, we have, a culture is just a, a group of people who think and do this, something very similar, so we, we share a language. It's funny when new people come to DCF, uh, they've told us before, they're like, you guys speak your own language. You're like, you know, the prophecy and, you know, and, and a sense of what God is doing and, you know, and vision. And, you know, you guys have your own language at DCF, grace and all this stuff. And, and that's true, we do. Uh, we talk about eldership, you know, and so you realize, do I call you Elder Dave? Do I call you Pastor Dave? No, just call me Dave because Dave's my name and what I, you know, elder or pastor, that's my function. So I don't call you Plumber Joe. You know, that's not what we do. So I'm cool with you calling me my, by my name, but we have a role, right? So all this kind of worked through as we kind of came into DCF, we began to work through that stuff and we said, what, what we want to let go of, some of that stuff I just told you, what do we want to hold on to? And one of those things was this. Uh, I've shared this many times before, but I was in, a, um, in Texas. We were leading a church in Texas. And I was invited to speak in a missions conference, and my friend Denny, who led a church in a city nearby, good, we were good friends with him, um, he introduced me, and Denny was kind of, he, he was, had a great sense of humor, and so he gets up and he says to the, to the group, he says, this is my friend Dave, and he has more faith than all of you guys. And I was like, oh man, Denny, don't do that. <laughs> like, it's bad enough when someone tries to introduce you, and you're like, who's that guy talking about? I don't know this guy they're talking about. But he goes, he has more faith than all of you guys. And he said, he actually believes the church can be fixed. And everybody laughed, because that's what we all did, you know. Because <laughs> everybody knows the church can't be fixed, right? That's kind of what he was saying. They were kind of admitting it without really recognizing they were admitting it. But that was something that was inside of me. I had no idea how strong it was. But the more I went along, my, my journey when it began was, the more I read Scripture and the more I understood who God was, the more I recognized that, that, that who God says he was and who we were acting like he was oftentimes were two different people, right? And, and who God said the church was and who the church was acting like was often two different people. And that really, really bothered me. And then I found out along that journey that I was part of the problem, <laughs> right? So I'm supposed to be in my role guide, give me, I was supposed to be leading people and equipping people. The problem was I was often equipping them the wrong way. And so we're going to talk a little bit about that, that today as we jump into this series on Ephesians. Ephesians, uh, I've talked about uh, different passages in Ephesians. A lot of times at DCF we preach, um, we preach series based on a subject or a, you know, or a truth or something along those lines. But I'm, I'm actually going to go through the book of Ephesians. So we're not going to take years to do that. I'm going to get through it pretty quick because I'm not going to do every single verse. But, but we're going to go through it and talk through it. And Ephesians is very interesting. Um, one theologian said this. He said, if, if I was on, a, on an island and I could only have one book out of the Bible, I thought long and hard, and the book I would choose is Ephesians. And a lot of people have that same mindset. Ephesians is a very interesting book when it opens up. Paul doesn't, he doesn't greet people the way he normally greets people because most of the letters in the New Testament um, were written to a group of people, right? And to this one, he, it's, it's true, he wrote to the Ephesians, right? And he had been there, he'd spent a couple of years there. Um, we'll talk a little bit next week about Ephesus and the city and the kind of the context of where, what Ephesians was written into. But Paul was in prison at the time he wrote this book. And so he's writing from Rome to these Ephesians. And, and in many ways, he addresses them kind of in a general context, and it's more of a theological uh, slash practical letter to the church in general. So he talks about the glory of the church, and he goes after some really interesting concepts in Ephesians. But what was fascinating is he doesn't really write it to a specific group of people. So there's not this warm, affectionate greeting like a lot of his letters had, like Corinthians and some of the others. He doesn't start out warmly greeting so-and-so and greeting so-and-so. He just jumps right into it. And Ephesians can be broken down. If you notice, the graphic I use is kind of a, a black and, and, and white on one side. Uh, and, and there's this massive contrast, and Ephesians is like that. The first three chapters of the, the book of Ephesians are really, really theological. 
And then the last three chapters are very practical. And so Paul did this on purpose. Obviously, when he's writing this letter, he's thinking through what he wants to say and why he wants to say it. And so what he's doing is he's writing to a fledgling church. He's writing to the church that Jesus died to create, right? A a group of called out. That's what church means, ecclesia in the original language. It means a called out people, a group of people who were part of something in general and then Jesus came and what he did created a way for them to come out from among them and be you separate, to use another scripture. But it was a called out group of people. And he called us out of the world to do something, to be something, to accomplish something. He didn't just say, hey, I want to save you, and now I've changed your state, who you are. You know, I've changed you from, from lost to found, from dead to alive. That's where a lot of these contrasts come from. But, but he says, I've, I've saved you for a purpose. I didn't just save you so you could be saved, right? I mean, we think about that. What's the greatest thing about it is, man, I'm, I'm rescued. I was, I was on a track for hell. You know, I was broken. I was lost and undone. I was away from God. I was an, actually an enemy of God. And Ephesians speaks to this. But something changed when I accepted what Christ did on the cross. I believed in something. I believed in something that someone did. I believed in someone. And when I put my faith and my trust in what Jesus did, it changed my nature, and I became something that I wasn't before, right? And so I I went from life, I'm sorry, went from death to life. I was dead in my sins and my trespasses, and I came alive in Christ Jesus. I was lost, and now I'm found. I mean, you see the contrast constantly, right? And so part of what Paul wrote to you, he says, I want to talk to you about who you are in this new understanding of what Jesus has done for you. So the first three chapters of Ephesians are really a lot about theology. They're about identity. They're about reminding you of who you are and whose you are. That's a big part of what we're going to talk about with Ephesians. And then we get to the second part of Ephesians, starting in chapter 4. And it goes after, because of who you are, this is how you should then live. Right? So it's saying, hey, it's not just, you don't just get to do anything you want. You, you know, because you're born again, and you've been rescued, and you've been, you've been drawn into a family, then now there's an expectation that what you're a part of begins to take, you begin to take on that life. You begin to take on the life of Christ in your life. You begin to take on the purpose of Jesus. And so what did Jesus come to do? He came to seek and to save that which was lost, right? So the church is not just about feeling good, not just about peace. It's not just about thank God that, that you know, what, when I was, my life was in turmoil and now it's not. You know, I, before I, had, my, I was constantly at war even in my own mind and now all of a sudden I have peace. I have a hope. I know that worst case scenario, no matter what this life throws at me, that there is heaven waiting, that the glories of, of heaven don't even compare to anything good we've, we've had down here. But the Bible says we've received his spirit as a down payment, almost like a taste and see that God is good. And what we can have in heaven, part of what Ephesians is saying, is what we have waiting for us in heaven in terms of the perfection, in terms of the connection with the Father, the, in terms of you know, uh, uh, hope and peace and no more sin and no more brokenness and no more condemnation and no more beat down, no more you know, uh, shame. None of those things, none of those things are in heaven. There's no room for it. There's no place for it. There's not even any place for sadness. Like the Bible says, when you get to heaven, every tear will be wiped away. Every single tear, no more sadness, no more brokenness, no more I wish I'd, no more regrets. They're all gone. Everything's finished. Everything's done. And, and then the picture of heaven is not one where we're the little baby angels, you know, with the wings, little fat baby angels. They're usually naked. I don't know why, but they are. And they sit on clouds. And I'm like, who, who came up with that idea for heaven? That's nowhere in the Bible at all, right? So there's something the Bible speaks to that, that we're going to be busy in heaven, that there's something that we have to do. Part of that is worship to God, that we're really going to see him the way we've tasted of what that looks like here. But when we get there, we're going to really, we're going to know, the Bible says we're going to be known the way we know, and we're going to know the way we've been known. Something begins to change when we get to heaven. But here's the promise that we miss, that, that there's a huge part of what we have in heaven that we don't have to wait for. 
but we're, but we're doing it. For some reason, someone has told us we can't have those things, so we're living in bondage. Oftentimes, we're living in turmoil. We're living in poverty, whether it's literal poverty with finances or spiritual or emotional poverty or family poverty or relationship poverty. We're, we're living so far below what God intended us for, for us to have. Why? And I believe this is the key answer. The key answer is because we're a bunch of babies. <laughs> we have not grown up. Many of us have not grown up. And even some, some of those who've grown up in many ways, there are certain areas in their life that are still toddler. And, and God, and it's, this is not to beat you up. That's not what I'm about. It's, it's to remind you that, that because of who you are, there's something that you can walk in. There's something that you can have. There's an inheritance that isn't waiting for heaven. If it's waiting for heaven, it's because the devil's convinced you that you can't have it now. And part of that is the promises that God has, has brought us. So think about this again, the glorious church, who we are. So he creates us. He gives each one of you a different gift. Karen talked about better together. And so we come and, and, uh, and, and we show up and I have a gift and you have a d- gift. And Karen said it, I love how she said it. I have what you need, and you have what I need. And God made sure that that occurred that way. He literally built you so you needed me. I'm sorry, but that's just how it is, <laughs> right? And he built, he built you so I need you. I don't get an option, so I've got to work it out. As a matter of fact, in Scripture, there's no place for anybody ever leaving the church. There's just, it just doesn't exist. The, the thing that God says is if you have a problem with your brother, if you've sinned against your brother, you go to that brother and you ask forgiveness and you move forward. You reconcile the relationship and you move forward. If that brother has sinned against you, you go to that brother. See how it works? God said, I'm going to put the responsibility. It's always on you. It's never on the other person. So that childish thing where, well, I'll repent when they repent. Well, I'll forgive when they forgive. You don't get to do that. You don't get to do that in the kingdom. You do it <laughs> sometimes, but you shouldn't. So, so where's the mess? And here's the mess. And I'm, this is kind of what I'm going to talk about. I'm not even literally, not even going to get to Ephesians today. So if you're thinking I'm going to read something out of Ephesians, it's not going to happen. <laughs> I might actually. But, but primarily I want to set this up because it's so important. So for, for 10 years I've been praying. I said, when I got here, I walked in the door. And part of my gift is apostolic. And all that means is um, I build things. Like, you know, it, the, the part of the role of the apostolic is to build foundations. That's part of what the apostolic and the prophetic does. We're going to see that in Ephesians 4 actually. So when I walk in anywhere, I don't care where it is, in any church, I can't help, I can't help doing this. I don't try to figure this out. I don't try to understand it. I just, it just happens to me. I know just about everything that's wrong in that church. I just walk in the door and all the faulty foundations that are in a church, whether it's this one or any other church that I visit, if I'm there for any length of time, I, I can't help but see the faulty foundations in the church. Why? Because part of what God's called me to do is to build the foundation so when the foundations aren't what they should be, they're glaring to me. Some of you guys have similar gifts like that. If you walk in and there's discouragement because you have the gift of encouragement, you can't help but see it, and it frustrates the living daylights out of you, right? It's, you don't understand. Some of you have the gift of giving, and you don't understand why people are in poverty. You're like, it makes no sense. Why would you be in poverty? God's given this gift, and all you have to do is believe, and it's a river, and, you know, just here, trust the Lord. I mean, how hard is it, right? <laughs> and some of that's easier if you have the gift. But my point is, is there's something about us, we, 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 because we have not matured fully in Christ, we, there's something that we know that we could have that we don't have. And too often, this is what we do, and Karen mentioned this, I think we talked about this in prayer, is we set it up where we play defense all the time, right? We always come in with, you know, the enemy's beating me down, and so my testimony is, you know, 15 minutes of how bad the devil's beat on me, you know, and 20 seconds of what Jesus did to combat that, right? You ever heard, we call them depressedimonies. Anybody ever heard one of those? We try to avoid those as much as we can. Why? Because, because it's, it's real, it's vivid. The, you know, the challenge in the world that we live in is, is, is real. It's, it's no different than as a baby. Here's, you know this is, is raising up a child. With a baby, you have to train a child. Just like you train a dog. I know that sounds terrible if you're a parent, especially if you're a mom. But you have to train a kid the way you train a dog. And it always amazes me as, as someone says, well, you know, I just can't do anything with them. I'm like, you, you outweigh them by like, you know, 900%. I mean, I'm pretty sure you can make your two-year-old do what you want to. But they frustrate you, right? These things happen. Because they have a powerful will even at two years old. Do they not? Right? Maybe I'm talking about somebody else's kids. But y'all know, even the the easiest kids, sometimes you're like, oh my gosh, where did that come from? And we talk about, you know, a kid who's stubborn. Man, you are so stubborn. That's what my dad used to say to me. My mom used to say, you're so stubborn. 
And that's not true. I'm not stubborn. I can be. (laughs) But I'm tenacious. Those are not the same things. Right? See how identity. And so all my life I was told as a child that I'm stubborn. So what is my natural aptitude if I'm not careful? Is I just am stubborn. I just want my own way. Why? Because I'm giving my gift. I'm serving everything. This capacity that I have is so immature and so broken that I use it for me. You ever watch this? We, we watch this. We've got a playground out in our back. Uh, not a playground, but a, um, a treehouse out in our backyard. And sometimes people come over. It's awesome. We can sit on the back porch with the, with the adults and the kids can go play. It's fenced in so they can't escape. <laughs> right? There's a, the treehouse is only, you know, about this high off the ground. It's not very far, so it's not, you don't have to worry about it too much. We had a bunch of people over and a bunch of leaders, and all of their kids are just like their moms and dads. They're leaders, the gift of leadership in them, right? And we're listening to the, what was going on out there, and this is Caleb and Rebecca and Andrew and Jamie and a few other leaders and their kids, and it's fascinating to listen to them. And one of them was so much fun, um, uh, Rebecca's oldest daughter, I forget. Elizabeth, yes. Yeah. So some of you guys know Elizabeth. If you don't, she's just she has one of the strongest leadership gifts you've ever seen. And if you know her parents, it makes perfect sense. And we we hear her out there, and everybody's talking about the role that they're going to play in the you know in the. It's a ship now. It's not no longer a treehouse, and it's a ship. And they're talking about the the role. And 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 Elizabeth just assumes she's the captain, so she just starts telling everybody all their roles. So she's like, you you do this, and you do this, and you do this, and they all did it. <laughs> and it turns out at the time. Most of all those roles were, were work, and Elizabeth's role as captain was overseer. <laughs> so here she is using that leadership gift she has selfishly, right? Not to serve the needs of the ship, <laughs> but to serve her own needs with the ship. See how it works? And so part of what Ephesians is going after is reminding that this fledgling church that has all this capacity, all these gifts, this, this passion that God has placed in your life, that it's supposed to be used for something besides your selfishness. And see, in immaturity, we pursue the things of God so often because I'm hurting, I'm, I'm, you know, I'm broken, I'm, I'm, I'm in poverty, I'm in need. And so most of our life, if we're not careful, is just like the life of a baby. I cry because I'm hungry, I pooped my pants and I can't clean myself up. You know, the list goes on and on about why babies cry. Sometimes they're teething, things are happening to their body. I remember as a, as a, as a young boy, I remember growing pains, my legs would just ache and I couldn't go to sleep and I would just cry and cry and cry and my mom, there's nothing she could do for me. She would just, she would just tell me, it's, it's, you're, you're just growing, you're just growing. And I was like, I don't want to grow, <laughs> right? Growing hurts. And that's what's happening. So, so Paul's speaking this Ephesians to this group of Ephesians. He's saying, I want to talk to you first about who you are. Because who you are is not a baby. Who you are, when God sees you, who you are, he sees you in the fullness of your identity. He sees you in the fullness of your maturity. And he begins to call that out. And if you get around people who are like that, they begin to do the same thing. We were talking about this with some other people before, about how do you raise, how do you disciple people, how do you raise kids? It's, it's a similar thing, almost the same thing. It's spiritual parenting and natural parenting. What do you do? When they're tenacious, do you call them stubborn? And the answer is most of the time, yes, right? <laughs> because that's what's expressed, that's the expression of tenacity that's coming out of them. They're using the gift of tenacity that God has given them for their own purpose, their own selfish purpose, and it's really wreaking havoc in the family. And you have to do something about that, right? So what do you do? You go after it oftentimes and you say, hey, stop that. You need to quit doing that, right? Stop it. You're being stubborn. And we list out all the things that they're doing wrong with the thing that God made them to be. How often do we, come, do we begin with, listen, this is not who you are. You're full of tenacity. God designed this, this tenacity to grab hold of things and never let them go, but good things to bless and help other people. This is what God's called you to. Why are you using it to be selfish? Don't do that. I'm going to have to put some consequences in place to show you that this is what happens when you sin, when you, you, when you use the thing that God has given you for your own selfish purposes, right? So it's parenting. But too often what we just do is we just call them stubborn. I remember riding one time with my mom and my aunt. I've shared this before, but um, my aunt looked at my mom and she said, does he ever shut up? And my mom said, no, he never does. <laughs> and so I'm like, that... I still remember that, right? I remember the first time I'm sitting that I can remember getting a haircut and the lady walks around because I got a big cowlick in the back of my head and she's like, oh my. 
I still, that traumatized me, <laughs> right? I remember that. And that other thing traumatized me. And so it, it, it said to me that talking was evil, right? That talking was bad. That talking and communicating was not something I should do, that I should push that down. You ever have a kid who loves to be the life of the party? You know what we tell them? We, when someone encourages them, we're like, don't encourage that. Don't do that. Don't encourage them. They don't need any help. Because that life that's in them, that, that the way God designed them, so often it irritates us as a family. But why? Because the life is about look at me, look at me, look at me, look at me, right? It's all about selfish, about getting attention. But at some point, God is going to use that. If we train that up and raise it up in the way it should go, God is going to use that gift, that, that life that is in them, that personality that reaches out across boundaries. It's going to reach people for the kingdom's sake. And if we're not careful, we will, we will tamp that down. We will stamp that down and crush that thing to the point where they struggle with their very identity of this is who God called me to be, but I was always chastised for being who God called me to be. And see, Paul writes to the Ephesian church, and he, and he says, I don't want to do that. I want to talk to you about who you are. I want to describe your identity. I want to tell you how amazing and incredible you are. Much, many of these people were not there yet, <laughs> Right? So what, what he wanted to do was write chapters 4 through 6 to the Ephesians. And what I want to do sometimes, and what you want to do as parents sometimes, is you want to write chapters 4 through 6 to your kids, to the people that work for you or work with you, to wherever you have influence. You want to speak to the brokenness and you want to say, hey, I need you to forgive one another. Come on now. What are you doing? You're, you're making a mess and, and, and displaying what's supposed to be the glory of God in the people on earth has now become something that, that the worldly people mock on a regular basis. Isn't that what they do today? Mock the church constantly. Why? Because so often the church is mockable. I don't even think that's a word, so I'm just making one up. Why? Because we have been so broken for so long that we, or we've been told that we're, we're something that we're not to the point where we've been stamped down and tamped down and pressed down so, so far that we can't step into the fullness of what God has for us. And so what we are supposed to be is the glory of God in the earth as believers, right? We're supposed to display the power and the wonder and the glory, the peace, the mercy, the kindness, and the goodness of God. We're supposed to display that in the earth. But so often the battle we're fighting is I don't even know who I am. I don't have peace myself. My own marriage is broken. And the list goes on and on and on. So what do you do about that? Right? Aren't you glad you came to church this morning? <laughs> so it's, it's ugly, right? The church can be ugly. Brokenness and immaturity can be ugly. So I want to talk to you about why Paul wrote chapters 1 through 3 before he wrote chapters 4 through 5. Why he went after identity and why he went after the truth of the gospel and what the church is about and who you are before he got to chapters 4 through 6 about how we should act because of who we are, right? So he's going after how you should behave. And if we're not, if, if we if we're be honest, the church has gone after how we behave way too often and way wrong, right? You're stubborn, not you're tenacious. This is not who God called you to be. Maybe that's what you did, but that's not who you are. That's grace. To do that, I have to give you a grammar lesson. <laughs> are you ready for a grammar lesson? <laughs> so I want to talk about a contrast between two, two verb moods in original language. One is, uh, is called, um, I'm trying to think how to frame this really, really well first. Um, We'll start with the indicative. So I'm going, to put a, I'm going to put a picture up here, okay, on two sides. So you're on one side, the indicative. This is a simple statement of fact. So underneath that, you see the book is on the table. It's just a true statement. It's not telling you to do anything about it. It's just the book is on the table. You can look at it and go, I agree. The book is on the table, right? It states what is. The imperative on the other side is a command. Put the book on the table is telling you to do something. Right? It hasn't happened yet. It's, it goes to the bottom of that. It says it attempts to control what will be. So you have the indicative on one side that states something that's true. You can't do anything about it. It is what it is. But the imperative is what you ought to do about what you know now. Right? So it, it's about the book should be on the table. Now you, sh you take the book and you put it on the table. And here's what Christianity has done too often. What we've done is we've, we've created this, this indicative. We turn the indicative into the imperative. So I'm going to give you some examples. This will make sense. But here's how, the, how it works. The Bible tells us that something is so, and then we attempt to change it into a command 
to make something so, right? So let me just give you an example. Um, we'll start with the first scripture, Romans 6, 7. Right? So here's Romans 6, verses 6 and 7. It says, For we know that our old self was crucified with him, so that the body ruled by sin might be done away with, that we should no longer be slaves to sin. Because anyone who has died has been set free from sin. So, so he's saying, you have died. Anyone who has died, that's past tense, right? The book is on the table. It's happened. Anybody who has died, now the Bible says you're free from sin, right? So now look at what it does in, in, uh, in just a little bit further down in the chapter, verses 11 through 14. It says, in the same way now, count yourselves dead to sin but alive to God in Christ. So here's what we do. We take the indicative, you are dead to sin, and this is what we do in the church. We turn it into an imperative, you should die to sin. You ever heard that? You ever felt that? Man, I just need to die to self. I just need to die to self. Nowhere in the Bible does it tell you to die to self. It tells you yourself has died. Right? The old man is dead. Right? That's what the Bible says. The old man has been dead. If He's been crucified with Christ. He's dead. Now you are alive in Christ. But here's what we do. We make it, we turn around backwards and we say, here's what you, you need to just die to sin. So you see sin in your life as a believer. You see sin in your life, and then because we've got this so wrong in the church, what you hear is you need to shine up. You need to quit sinning. You need to stop doing the things that you're doing. It's the same as my, my, my aunt saying, does he ever stop talking? And the answer is no, he never does, right? <laughs> so the, the, the implied imperative in that is, Dave, you should stop talking, right? What, what would have been nice had my my family had the maturity to say it, they could have said, Dave, I, there's something amazing that you, you can communicate, you can talk the bark off of a tree. They said that to me a lot. You can talk the bark off a tree. I wonder what that's for. That's probably not an accident. Dave, you're an incredible communicator. Now, sometimes <laughs> you use it for selfishness, right, to get attention. But what would that look like if you really begin to go after that in the way it's supposed to go? But that's not what happened. I got the imperative without the indicative. So here's, here's another one. Um, here's basically what we do. All too often we turn the message of what has been done into a message of what we ought to do. So here's another one. This is Philippians chapter 2. It says, Therefore, my dear friends, as you have always obeyed, not only in my presence, but now much more in my absence, continue to work out your salvation with fear and trembling. So we hear that. We read that as a brand new believer because we're a baby, right? We don't know. We haven't been, nobody's told us, nobody's created the pattern in our life where it's about identity first, and then, and then from our identity, we know that we can do something, right? So we read this scripture, and this is what we hear. Work out your salvation. You do it. You work out your salvation. And that is true. That's what it says, isn't it? Let's read it again. It says, continue to work out your salvation with fear and trembling. That's even worse. It's like, well, now we turn that into because you're probably not completely saved. So what that means is you're probably going to hell if you don't work this out. So you better work out your salvation. Otherwise, you're going straight to hell. You're going to burn forever. Well, that's lovely. Thank you for that wonderful thought, right? But look at what it says in the very next verse. For it's God who works in you. You see what happens? So, so what, what the imperative is, is to work out your salvation with fear and trembling. What's the indicative? The indicative is because God is working in you. You can work out your salvation. You can, you can live it out. And this is what literally it means. It means to live out what's already occurred in you. Right? So when it says work out your salvation, it doesn't say work to be saved. Because that's what we turn that into. Right? That's always what we turn it into. It's what the church has done. Work to be saved. You do works so that God will love you. Do, if you do enough good things, it cancels out the bad things, right? Balance in the universe. And that is not at all how the gospel works, and we know that. Here's another example. Ephesians 4, verse 32. It says, be kind and compassionate to one another, forgiving each other, just as in Christ God forgave you. It's because we've been forgiven that we can forgive. I, I remember, again, I, I told you there's some things that I tried to leave behind before I got to DCF. I remember praying for a girl one time, and she, she, we knew her very well. She was beginning to move into levels of maturity and leadership, and she struggled, struggled with certain things in her life. We were praying for her one time, and, uh, and she said, I, I, I need to forgive my dad. I feel like I haven't forgiven him. And so I'm, we're at the, at the altar praying with her, and I said, well, you know, it's, it's something you should do, of course. You know, you gotta, you got to forgive him. And this was before I really understood what I'm talking about today or understood grace. And she said, I, I can't. I can't forgive him. And I said, um, you know, the Bible says you should. 
So I'm giving her the imperative, right, without the indicative of why she should or how she can. I'm just telling her she, she needs to. I'm giving her the law is what I'm giving her. And I'm going to talk about that in just a second. And so she says, um, I can't. It was too horrible what he did. So, you know, in being naive, I said, well, what do you do? <laughs> that was the wrong question to ask. Talking about opening up a can of worms. He said, well, I left home when I think, I think she was 15 when she left home. She said, I left home when I was 15. And she said, and that's because he sexually molested me every day as a child until I turned 15 and I found a way out. And I'm like, every day? She goes, I don't know if it was every day, but she goes, it was every day I can remember. So her dad, who was supposed to protect and cover and care for her, did the very opposite. So he became evil incarnate. He, he was representing God the Father and the goodness and the kindness of God, which is supposed to be the model she sees in her father. And what he does to her is anything but. And it, and it really, 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 really messed her up. She was broken seven ways to Sunday. And she said, she came to the place where she understood a need to forgive him. And I wish, oh my goodness, I wish I knew then what I know now. Because I could have told her about this. I wouldn't have used those words. <laughs> Indicative imperatives, not helpful at the altar, right? <laughs> um, but what I would told her was, because you've been forgiven, you can forgive him. You've been forgiven. So dwell on that. And then as you understand that, you're going to be able to forgive your dad. It's possible. Now, whether you do that or not, you're saved. God loves you. He's not removing his kindness and his goodness from your life. He won't. But because you were in this trap, this is what the enemy did. He's gotten you in a trap now where if you don't, if you don't do this, the consequences for not doing this will basically destroy you, continue to destroy you. Every relationship you have, it'll constantly mess with your relationship with your father. It's, it's going gonna, it's gonna to be destructive in every way. Right? That's what I should have said. It's not what I told her. I told her, Matthew 6, 14, if you forgive other people when they sin against you, your heavenly Father will also forgive you. But if you do not forgive others their sins, your Father will not forgive your sins. That's what I told her. And I regret it. And the reason why is that's what I'd been told. And that's what I had learned. And even when I said it, it didn't sound like Jesus. Isn't it interesting that Jesus is the one who said it? But it doesn't sound like Jesus, does it? See, something about it we know. We recognize it and then we're like, something about that's not right. So I've shared this numerous times and we go after this in a big way. Is In part of your discipleship journey, when you read Matthew, when you read the Gospels and you read the words in red, you've been told by the church to do what the words in red tell you to do. This is Jesus talking, you should do it. Except for oftentimes his audience, he was talking to people who were under the law and he was giving them an imperative with no indicative. Now why does it matter? He's telling them to, them to do something they cannot do say so they would fall upon the mercy and the grace of God so that they would see a need for a Savior and come running to the only one who could change who they are, who could make them into who God called them to be, who could make them a son, who could give them every bit of inheritance that he intended their life to have. He could give them the peace. He could give them forgiveness. He could give them hope. Everything that they need so that they, from that identity, now can forgive other people who've done horrendous things. That's what I should have told her, but I didn't. So this is pretty important, and this is why I've been waiting. I've been waiting for 10 years to go after this at DCF. Why? Because every time I would pray, I would say, Lord, I really want to talk about 1 Timothy and Titus, because 1 Timothy and Titus talks about, um, you know, if you desire to be an elder, you desire a noble thing. It's a beautiful thing. You should go after leadership in the church. It's supposed to be amazing. Too often it's been damaging. A lot of people have come from that. It's not supposed to be damaging. But it goes through this list, and it says an elder must be this. And then it says a deacon must be this. And so what we did in the church, because we're basically stupid, is we said, oh, so elders have a way of living. So, you know, you guys, just so you know the Weisigers, you have a standard way up here that you have to live up to, but the rest of us don't because we're not elders or deacons. So, you know, we don't have to live up to that standard. That's, what we've, that's how we've communicated that. We haven't meant to oftentimes, but it's what we've done. Here's why that's so wrong. Because it has set the bar so low for you and for me and for everybody who's just a believer, right? It's set the bar so low. You don't have to grow up. You have people who grew up for you. You have a mom and dad. You have mothers and fathers in the church who will take care of all your needs. They'll pray for you when you're broken, when you're hurting. 
So it turns into this big family with a bunch of babies that never, ever, ever, ever grow up because they've never been challenged to. So you know why they haven't been challenged to? Because when we've challenged them, we've challenged them with imperatives that never are born out of an indicative. We've challenged them with the law, shine up, get, get hold of your life. Come on, how long is it going to take before you grow up? I mean, goodness gracious, you're a bunch of babies. Come on, shine up, stop sinning, stop sleeping with another. And it goes through this huge list. And it feels right because it's true, <laughs> right? But that's not what God called us to do. So for 10 years at DCF, every time I've wanted to go after this, God's like, nope, not yet. I'm like, why? He's like, because they're still growing up. And they still haven't understood to the point where they're settled in it that grace is settled, that I am who he says I am, that nothing I'm ever going to do is going to cause him to love me any less. He saved me to bring me into truth and bring me into all those things, but I am heaven ready the moment I give my life to Christ because it's not about anything I've done, it's about everything he did for me. And all I'm doing is putting my faith in. I'm trusting that what Jesus did was enough. I'm trusting that who God says he is and what God says is truth. That's Remember Abraham, the covenant, all this stuff ties together. Abraham in the covenant, the Bible says he, he, um, he trusted God. He believed God was telling the truth. And because of that, God granted him righteousness. That was before the gospel. That was before the law. So when Moses goes up on the mountain and he comes down and, and, and he reads the commandments, what the whole of Israel, millions of people who are listening to this, what they should have said is, no, nah, we're good. <laughs> Abram, Abraham's covenant, which we're already living in, we're going to keep that one. You can have the law and you can keep that up on the mountain. We don't want that. We want that. But you know what they said? In their arrogance, this is what church people said. We will do everything that's in that book. And God said, we will see. Right? Because what is he trying to do? He's trying to get us to understand. He's trying to get us out of our self selfishness, out of our arrogance, out of I've got this. You don't got this. If you got this, the law would have worked, and it didn't. And you know it because you've tried it, and it doesn't work. So what's left? What God intended all along, that if you believe me, if you believe what I'm telling you, if you believe what I've done on the cross th through Christ, if you believe that and you receive that and trust him for your, your na new nature, it is done, finished, never going to change. You are heaven ready. You are, it's settled. But then we're born again, and because we, don't, we haven't had leaders that would teach us in the church in, in a way, we, because I've been born again, I'm still born. I'm just a baby. And I've got to grow up in Christ and understand what that means. And that's what, the, when you read the New Testament, it's what the apostles were constantly trying to do to the church. They're saying, hey guys, you've been born again. It's glorious. Let me talk to you about how amazing that is. Everything that you have need of, he's given it to you already in Christ Jesus. If you're in Christ, you're not in sin. If you're in Christ, you're not dead. You're alive. He goes through a hundred different ways of trying to explain it. And what we get out of it almost every single time is we go right back to being a baby going, I'm going to take what I need. I'm going to take the things. I want peace. I, want, I don't want to deal with the real issue that's going to bring real peace. I want, to, I want to bug out or I want to leave a church or I want to leave a relationship or I want to bail on something because it takes the tension away and I call that peace. And it's not peace. It's a lie. It's a temporary peace which is no peace at all. So God says, what if you just had a confrontational, you know, communication and relationship? What if you just said to them, hey, listen, what you've been doing and how you've been attacking me, I love you, but you don't get to do that ever again. What if you actually put boundaries in place with your kids as an adult? You said, guys, I love you, but, but it's time you do, you, you do some stuff yourself. It's time to grow up, right? You know how come we haven't done that? Because oftentimes we haven't grown up. And this, this message is not designed to beat you up. I'm pretty sure this is why God wouldn't let me preach it for 10 years. But I prayed, and he said, you're ready. So looking at your faces, I'm not so sure. <laughs> Could you imagine if this was my first sermon? You're like, we're not bringing that guy here. No way. No way we're bringing But this is my thought. The, the moment I walked in the door, I said, God, what would, what would we look like as a people? And I included me in this. I'm, done, I'm not, trust me. I might be a little farther along than, than some, but, but I, I put myself in the same boat. It's time to grow up. It's time to take on what God meant for us to take. It's time to, and here's what it looks like. It's time to say enough of being a child. And this is the way Paul put it. He wrote these things. Again, we read these things in Scripture, but because we have been trained so wrong, 
we read it as condemnation. And, and, and we've got to get to the place where we read it accurately. We move away from condemnation and read it as an imperative that's based on the indicative that either came before it or comes after it every single time. That because this is what Jesus did, remember he said it, he said, forgive one another. That is an imperative, that's a command. It's like the law except for it's born out of grace. Because you've been forgiven, you forgive others. You don't get an option, not if you're going to be mature. You get an option if you want to stay a baby. But at some point, you forgive. Well, I don't know how, then learn how. I don't know that I can. Well, learn that you can, (laughs) right? Stop staying in that place and come to this new place that says this is who God says you are. Because of that, now you have to take an action step, right? So there's an an indicative in the the question that says, to use that phrase we used before, put the book on the table, right? If the indicative is there, the assumption is you have the ability to put the book on the table. So put the dang book on the table, right? (laughs) Because you can, So stop whining about why the book's not on the table, and you do it. See, but this is what we do as as children. We say, Mom, put my pants on because, you know, I don't want to try. You ever try to put pants on a toddler? It's like like wrestling a bag of snakes. It's like, you know, you know what I'm talking about? (laughs) It's fun for a little while. I I did this with my nephews, and I'm like, stop. What are you doing? Put your pants on yourself. You're not, you know, you're not six months old. Come on. And they, you know what? They they did it. They're not as smooth as me. You know, I can, I, I can basically jump into my pants now. I've been doing it for a long time. <laughs> They're not as smooth as me. Well, my, se- my seven-year-old nephew is now. He can put his pants on pretty quick. Turns out they were capable the whole time. You know what? They, never, they didn't believe they were or didn't want to believe they were because it was much more convenient for you to do it for me. So enough. 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 Don't get me wrong, there are going to be moments where we all still need it. So I'm not saying we're not ever going to do this again. You guys are frightening. Just your faces, I'm like, oh, my goodness. Maybe I should have waited 20 years <laughs> before I started this series. <laughs> and I know you get it. I know, I know it's going to work out. But my point is, is it, at some point you have to realize, okay, I, I'm not letting go of the indicative to go after the imperative. I, I'm grabbing hold of it and going, I know this now. I know I can. I know I can step up. I know I can be financially responsible. I know I can take responsibility for my friendships. I know I can take responsibility for my kids in the way I need to do. I know I, can, I know I have what it takes as a husband, as a man, to lead my home. I'm not going to be passive anymore because I don't have to be. I, I don't have to do it anymore. I can make a choice as a man as opposed to a child. I refuse to do that anymore. And this is what Paul said. When I was a child, I acted like a child because it was appropriate when I was a child. But it's time, this is what he said, I have, not God did it for me. God didn't come and get all your toys and put them in a room and say, no more, you can't play with them no more. God came and said, hey, do you think it's time maybe you put your toys away and take on some real responsibility? And I have to say, yes or no. It's time for us to say, I'm going to put away childish things and I'm going to take on the things that are necessary, not just to finish what God is doing in me, Right? The truth is it's already finished. There's just some action steps I need to take to see the fulfillment of that. Because Christ has forgiven me, I can forgive others. So stop saying you can't forgive people. Stop saying you won't forgive them. Stop it. That's an imperative. The only reason that works is because you can stop it. Because of what Jesus did. Is that helpful? Maybe. Maybe not. So let me just put a phrase up here just kind of to wrap it all up. Because such and such is true about you, that's the indicative, because this thing is true about you, you should put off this kind of behavior, the negative imperative, and put on this kind of behavior in its place, the positive imperative. This is the structure of the new covenant. Because Jesus has done this for you, you can do this. Because he has forgiven you, you can forgive other people. Stop saying you can't. Get in line. It, ultimately, what it comes down to is being who God says you are. But, let me, but here's the important part. And this is why I'm doing all this before we even get into Ephesians. Because if we get into Ephesians without this, you, you think your faces are sullen right now. Wait till we get into Ephesians chapter 4. We get into st- some of the stuff that he tells us we should be as the church. But here's the joy of it. Once we begin to grab hold of this, 
what happens is we stop worrying about ourselves. We've dealt with certain issues and certain things in our life. We're finished, right? Because we Not because we did it, but because Jesus said it's finished, and I actually believe what he said about it. I believe that it's finished. My sin is taken away. What if I have patterns in my life? That's what maturity is for, for other people to come around you, to challenge you, for you to get into a small group. And some of you guys don't get in a small group because, let's be honest, you're childish. <laughs> and so what that means is getting in a small group is hard because I actually have to talk to other human beings. I have to actually become vulnerable. I have to actually let some of this stuff out. I actually have to tell the truth about where my life really is, not where I wish it was. And you don't want to do that because it's embarrassing and you go down the list. And it's only that because you haven't believed the gospel. So I'm challenging you. Believe the gospel. Get in a small group. Get connected. It doesn't have to be at DCF. I don't care if you're in a group anywhere. If you get connected with other believers, as Karen said, we're better together. God is challenging us to come together because you have something I need. Sometimes that means you challenge me. You say, Dave, you know what? why are you acting that way? That's not who you are. That's the right way to do it. Not Dave, shame on you. That's not helpful. There's no shame on me. Even if I do something that's shameful, I know, it's the gospel. I hate it. I wish it weren't true. I wish we, we could go back to the law and I could pull myself up by my bootstraps, even though that's impossible to do. Anyway, that's a <laughs> cultural side note. But I, I, I want to do it myself, but I can't. Turns out that when I finally realize that I need God and I lean into him, then what he does is he says, everything that you have need of is yours because you're in Christ. So then the only question ever is, are you in Christ or not? If you're not in Christ, now this stuff is going to make sense, and you're not going to get anywhere. Until you get in Christ, until your life is hidden with Christ in God, you're never going to receive the inheritance that is his, and therefore ours, because he's our older brother. It's ours because he has received us back into the family. He has adopted us. You know something interesting about adoption? You know, sometimes you have kids because you had an oops, and now you have kids, it's like, oh, okay, apparently I'm going to have to love them because here they are, right? (laughs) That's not how adoption works at all. Adoption comes in, you spend a ton of money, you spend a ton of time, you go through all kinds of red tape, you do everything you can to go after some child, right, because you love them and you want them to be a part of your family. And you spend tons of money and tons of resources before they're ever part of your family. Because in your heart, they've always been part of your family and now it's time and I'll spend whatever I have to spend, I'll do whatever I have to do so that I can have them back in my family. That's God adopting you and I. That's just the truth. Well, then, what are the implications of that truth? If your heavenly Father owns the cattle on a thousand hills, why are you poor? Can I tell you why? Because the devil's beat us down so hard that we don't know there's any other option. That's mostly what happens. Do you know, you know the people, I hear this argument all the time, if God was so good, why does he let kids die? Why are people poor? He goes through this whole list. Do you, do you know how many people, how many Christians have, have brought people out of poverty? you know how many hospitals Christians have built in poverty-stricken nations? Why? Because they're praying, God, bring miracles in. We want to see signs and wonders. But in the meantime, this is helpful too, and we're going to do this. What, what, what's happening is the nature that's in them goes after and tries to pull other people out of poverty. Can, let me ask you this. How many poor people can take other poor people out of poverty? None. That's the answer to that question. None. You can't do it. There has to, you have to have something more to draw people out. So God's assumption is this. If you understand the kingdom, I'm not saying you have houses and cars and riches and all that stuff. That's not, I'm not preaching that kind of gospel. That's not the gospel at all. What I'm saying is this, that everything that you have need of, God has given it to you. So we pray and we say, Karen and I do this on a regular basis. We, Lord, we need this. We, we'd like to give this. We did this before. We heard the Lord say, hey, I want you to give this amount of money towards these two things. This happened just a couple of months ago. It was a significant amount of money, and so we said, okay, we have it. We have savings, but it's going to, you know, it's not, it's not coming out of our income. It's going to come out of something we put, put aside, but we have it. We heard the Lord say, give it, and we did. And you know what it, the Lord did immediately? We, we ended up with a, 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 a bill from the water company where they changed something out, and it wasn't working, and for three months, we were paying into a bill, and it, was, it wasn't there, and they just gave it to us for free. And every, the money that we spent ended up being the amount of money um, that we had prayed and asked the Lord and, t- and told the Lord we were going to give. So what am I saying? I'm saying it's not instantaneous. God's not a bellboy in heaven. You just yank the chain and he does what, he, what you want. But he is your father. And everything you have need of, you have need of peace this morning, guess what? He can give you peace. 
Wait, he's already given you peace. Right? So what's in the way of you having peace if he's already done it? What has the enemy lied to you about? Karen mentioned this, the, you know, the, you entertaining a demon, right? You can't get free from a demon you entertain, whatever that looks like. At some point, you have to say, God, you've done everything, and this is in the way. Why is it this working? A couple things you can do about that. One is you can talk to people who maybe know more about it than you do. Talk to moms and dads in the faith and say, hey, I'm struggling in this area. Can you help me out? And then be willing to listen to what they have to say. The other thing is just say, what's hindering? Is there something the enemy is doing? Ask the Lord for a picture. Give, Lord, talk to me because this is not the way you meant it to be and this is what I'm seeing. And I'm going to begin to pray into this. I'm going to begin to see change. I'm telling you, if we do that as individuals, it begins to change our life. What would it look like? I mean, just take, as we close, just think about this. What would it look like if we came here on a given Sunday morning and you guys were in such good shape and such maturity now, I'm not beating you up because you're not there yet. If you're on the journey, most of us are somewhere on the journey. That's fine. Come through the journey. I'm not beating you up because you need the journey. What I'm saying is, what if the majority of us were there in a place of maturity, health, wholeness, that, that God had provided everything we're needing, that we are in abundance, that we have more peace than we can stand. We have more hope than we can stand. We've seen God heal us, and so we have a testimony of healing. We've seen God provide finances, so we have a testimony of finances. What would it look like then? If the majority of us came in this room and I said, how many of you got, have a need and not a single person raised their hand? What might we pray for next? What would we go after if we were mature as a church? Let me finish by saying, pray for the city. It's what God told an Old Testament group of people to do to a group of people who had taken them into bondage. That's hard to do under grace, let alone the law, right? And oftentimes what we want to do is we see all the problems and the brokenness. I sat down just the other day, and uh, there was a group of young guys sitting across from me, and they were rowdy. They're 25, 26 years old, something like that. Rowdy, egotistical, childish, and I was just embarrassed for the three of them. I was embarrassed for masculinity. Let me just go there. And I thought, you know, I'd really like to just go over there and punch them right in the face. And I would feel good for about a second before the three of them jumped on me and beat the living daylights out of me probably. Wouldn't have helped. You know, my heart broke. I said, I, I think I know why they're there. Because nobody's told them who they are. These are young men probably, either their dad hasn't, wasn't there at all, or he told them all the wrong things. What would it look like if we had young men who were at a place where they're, you're not having to pray for them, they're praying for you. We used to do this with kids up at, in, in youth group and ministries we served in. When a kid turned 13-year-old, we'd have this ceremony. We'd say, hey, it's time to put away childish things. It's time to, time to be a man, 13. Ceremony. We're doing some of this stuff uh, with our, our men's group right now with uh, Tim. We're aiming towards fixing some of those places where we've been broken. And this is what we said. They said, we'd say to the young man, has your mom prayed for you, kids in the church? Yeah, all the time. What would it look like if you started praying for her? What if you, what if you on, on a weekly basis, you begin to pray for your mom, you begin to practice, because at some point you're going to have to pray for your wife, right, and your kids. What if you started now and said, Mom, thanks for praying for me. I appreciate it. Anything you got for me, I'm happy to hear. But I was praying for you this week, and this is what I felt like the Lord said. We had kids at 13, 14 years old coming with words of knowledge, praying for their moms, and their moms seeing things broken off their life. What would it look like if we as a body, we as a church, rose to that place of maturity that we believe, like we're going to do in Ephesians, that this is who God says I am. And because of that, if he says the book can be on the table, and he's telling me to put the book on the table, but in truth, he's done every bit of the work to get the book on the table, what do I need to do to align myself and get in the place where the book can go on the table? Now, I don't know what the book is, in your life, and I know what the table is in your life, but I believe as we go through the series, God's going to begin to shore those, some of those things up. You're going to get serious. You're going to fix some of these things that are in your life because you can. You're going to stop making excuses. You're going to rise to the occasion, and what God does in you, hear me, what God does in you, he's going to begin to do in people all around you, and if that begins to happen, we're going to reach a place, a tipping point as a church where our church is going to grow really, really fast.
because the, all the prayer and the effort and the resources that we're putting into what we're doing together to try to help one another, that's wonderful. We need to keep doing those things, but we're, there's going to be less need for it because maturity is going to rise up and the, and the, the, the abundance that's been placed on us is going to be able to be poured out into people who don't know the Lord, who are broken, who, don't even, who aren't even part of the family yet. And we're going to see breakthrough. We're going to see signs and wonders. We're going to see God breakthrough in people's lives. You're going to walk in abundance financially. You're going to walk in abundance in health. When, when the enemy comes in and he begins to attack people in health, we're going to have so many testimonies that faith is going to rise in this place and it's just going to be easy to get healed, just like now it's easy to get a prophecy. It's the same supernatural. It's not one is harder than the other. But we're going to see so many testimonies, it's going to begin to flow in our church. And I don't know about you, but I'm excited about that. So I hope you don't think I'm beating you up. <laughs> Won't you stand with me? We pray. I, I can feel the tension when I'm preaching this. Um, some of you guys are like, Dave's mad at me. Or he's picking me. You know, I'm, He's thinking about something I've done that he needs to address from the pulpit. I don't know if you've met me yet or not, but I, that's not how it works. If you've got something I need to talk to you about, I'll be up in your business quicker than you can get away from me. I promise. I'm not afraid of that. So that's not what I'm doing. What I'm doing is I'm saying, hey, it's time. What God is doing in us what he's doing in you, it's time to take a stand and say, you know what? It turns out the enemy is not actually powerful enough to stop me from having what God says I can have. He's not powerful enough. There's no person who has the power over your life that can keep you from having what God says you can have. He says you can have health. He says you can have wholeness. He, can, he says you can walk away from your brokenness, walk away from fear. He says everything you have need of, I provided it already in Christ. And if you're in Christ, it's yours for the taking. I don't know what your book looks like. I don't know what your table looks like. But I have a sense that in the, in the coming weeks, we're going to see a lot of books get on tables. Amen? Heavenly Father, thank you. Lord, thank you for challenging us. Jesus, you came with some really challenging words sometime. Um, but Lord, it was because you saw who we were supposed to be and you were challenging us to walk into it. Lord, that's my prayer for us as a body. Lord, it's not just them, it's me, it's all of us, Lord, that have those challenges, those things that we need to make the adjustment. Lord, we know what they are. Um, Lord, no more pity, no more pity parties, Lord. It's just time to say yes to the things of the kingdom and no to the things of the enemy, no to brokenness, no to unwholeness, no to all those things, and to walk into the fullness of the inheritance that you paid such a huge price to give to us. Lord, we receive it in Jesus' name. We receive that inheritance in Jesus' name. Lord, we expect, our expectation is rising that we're going to see breakthrough in every area of our life that we need breakthrough. We're going to see it in healing. We're going to see it in finances. We're going to see it in relationship because it is ours, Lord, because you've given it to us. You've provided for us, Lord, and now we just need to take it in Jesus' name. Lord, your word says that the kingdom of heaven suffers violence and violent men take it by force. Lord, it's been given to us, but the enemy tries to hold it back or our own unwise uh, immaturity tries to hold us back. But Lord, because of who you are, you've given it to us and it's ours for the taking. In Jesus' name, amen. If you need prayer this morning, our team is up here. We'd love to pray for you. Otherwise, have a great week and uh, I hope you come back next week. 